Well, we do welcome those of you who are joining us online and also those of you uh, who are meeting here together at Central Campus, along with those of you meeting at one of our other campuses in Airdrie, uh, Bridgeland, South Calgary, and also in Bearspaw. We're in a new series in the book of Romans, and so I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles or your Bible apps uh, to Romans chapter 1. Now, Paul essentially addresses two questions in this section of Scripture from verse 18 to 32. Why is God's wrath being revealed? And secondly, how is God's wrath being revealed? Now, we addressed the first question, why is God's wrath being revealed, last time. But it is the key to understand the Scripture that we're looking at today. And so, here's a quick recap First of all, in verses 19 and 20, Paul writes that God has been and continues to reveal himself to people everywhere in two ways. First of all, outwardly, through his awesome creation, and secondly, inwardly, through an inner awareness of God, a God-given conscience, uh, and a moral code that's written on our hearts by God himself. Regardless of where a person lives or has lived, every person knows that there's a God because God has revealed himself to them and therefore they are without excuse. Now in verse 20 to 23, Paul goes on to say that even though God has clearly revealed himself, people replace God with idols. They suppress the truth of God. They attempt to explain it away because they don't want God messing with their lives. And when people do this, he says, three things happen. First of all, God's wrath is revealed. In other words, his wrath is directed at their uh, rejection of him. Second, their thinking uh, becomes uh, foolish and futile. And thirdly, as we're going to see in our study today, their life begins to fall off the rails, morally speaking, as they spiral deeper and deeper into a selfish, immoral, and hedonistic way of life, or in Paul's words here, into wickedness. Which brings us to our scripture lesson today. So I'm going to invite you to stand with me as we read a portion of this scripture together. Beginning in verse 24. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, Again, we thank you for your word, and we ask, Lord, that today you would help us to understand this passage that we're looking at. And Lord, toward that end, that you would focus our minds 
And Lord, you would soften our hearts and you would give us the courage to do and to be what you call us to do and be. For I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. In Luke chapter 15, it tells the story of a young man who became convinced that he was missing out on a lot of life, that he was missing a lot of fun um, by continuing to live at home. He wants to be free. He wants to enjoy his life and live it the way that he wants to. And so he informs his father of his desire to leave and also that he would receive his share of his inheritance before his father dies, which is one of the most insulting, was one of the most insulting things that he could have asked for in that day. The father is heartbroken. He is also concerned for his son because he's seeing this played out in the lives of other people in the community over the years. And he wishes that his son would have a change of heart. But his son is determined, and so the father makes the agonizing decision to let his son go. And he gives him his share of the inheritance. The son bursts out of the house, money in hand, shouting to himself, finally, I'm free. I'm free. Unfortunately, he has no idea of the mess, the pain, the despair that he will face in time, especially when the money begins to run out and the party the partying is over. And here in the passage we just read, the Apostle Paul says that in the same way the father in the parable let his son go with great reservation, but he did let his son go. There comes a time when God does the same thing with those who persistently reject him or replace him. When people keep suppressing the truth, when people ignore God or replace God with counterfeit idols, uh, when people continue to live wicked lives, there comes a time when God gives them over. In fact, this is how God reveals his wrath. Notice in verse 18, Paul doesn't say the wrath of God will be revealed one day in the future judgment. No, he says the wrath of God is being revealed. It's being revealed right now. God is judging godlessness and wickedness right now in the present. So how is he doing this? Well, he lets people have their own way. We often think about lightning bolts and all kinds of things, but no. God's revealing his wrath by letting people have their own way. Look at verse 30, 24. Look at verse 26 and verse 28. They all start with the same phrase. God gave them over. So what does the phrase God gave them over mean? Does it mean that God gives up on them? Not at all. It means that he allows people who have pushed him away to have their way. God's present judgment is if you want to sin, if you, wanna, if you keep insisting on having your own way, well, then I'm going to let you. But as verse 27 says, you will reap the consequences of your choices. You know, people think that they're free to do whatever they want to do. 
which is largely true. But they are not free to escape the consequences of their choices. I mean, for example, let's say that a fellow stands on top of Banker's Hall in downtown Calgary declaring, I am free to jump off this building if I want to. And let's say to prove his point, he actually does. About 20 stories down, he waves at people in their offices and says, you know, so far so good. But the truth is, now that he has jumped, he's no longer free. He is now a slave. He is now a victim to the law of gravity. Folks, when we break God's laws or God's principles, they break us. God's a good God. He has our best interests at heart in all things. He never gives us a negative command without a positive purpose. When we ignore his ways, we may think that, you know, it's, it's no big deal, that there's no cost, but there always is. In this verse, God's speaking specifically about those who reject him. He's talking about unbelievers here. And what's implied in this verse is before God gives an unbeliever over, they're still the recipient of a certain amount of God's grace, protection, and watch care. Otherwise, there would be nothing for God to restrain. There'd be nothing for God to give them over to. But God actually restrains. He holds back the evil one from carrying out his sinister agenda, not only on believers, but also unbelievers. Because of God's unrelenting love and desire to reveal himself to them and to get their attention and to draw them to himself. But when an unbeliever, and I might add an entire society or group of people, continues to rebel, continues to suppress and exchange God's truth for a lie and essentially says, I want nothing to do with you, God, or your truth. God says, okay, have it your way. We'll play it out the way that you want. And make no mistake, this is not a position a person ever wants to find themselves in. To have God give you over. Now in Romans 1, it teaches that God gives people who replace him, reject him, over to three counterfeit idols. Number one, sexual purity, impurity. Number two, shameful lusts. And number three, a depraved mind. Let's unpack those a little more. First of all, God gives them over to sexual impurity. Look at verse 24. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. So what is sexual impurity? Well, as we're going to see in a moment, it's the same as sexual immorality. Now, if we want to know what God's moral standard for sex is, we need to go back to the, the beginning. We need to go back to creation. And so turn in your Bibles to Genesis 2, verse 24. This is what we read there. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. This scripture spells out God's design for sexual intimacy. It is to be between a man 
and a woman who are united in marriage. In fact, for those who believe this is just an Old Testament, old school, outdated teaching, no longer relevant in the New Testament, in Matthew 19, verse 5, Jesus quoted this verse, clearly affirming this to be God's moral context for sexual intimacy. So here's the thing. If this statement is God's moral standard for sexual intimacy, then we can conclude that any sexual relations outside of this context is immoral or it's unacceptable to God. So when we read, for example, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3, but among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity, we know that this is referring to any sexual intimacy happening outside of a committed marriage between a man and a woman. Now let me just say that if you have a non-biblical or if you have a non-Christian worldview, you may not agree with what the Bible teaches here at all. In fact, we as Christians shouldn't expect those who aren't followers of Jesus to embrace this or any other Christian ethic. I'm just articulating what the Bible teaches is God's design for sexuality. Now, in verse 25, when Paul writes, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things like sex, serve created things rather than the creator who is forever praised, amen. The lie that he's referring to is people saying, you know, God, I believe that if I follow you, my life's going to be miserable. And so I'm going to take control of my life. And I'm going to live it the way that I want to live it. Because I believe I know better than you what's going to ultimately make me happy and fulfilled in life. That's the lie. It's the same lie that Adam and Eve fell for when Satan suggested that God didn't really have their best interests at heart and was really out to kind of destroy their fun and their happiness in life. And of course, God gave them over to what they wanted as well. And that was the beginning of the mess that we see in our world today on so many different levels. Now, Paul's description here in verse 24 to 27 sounds very much like our sex-centric culture today. The well-known founder of a pornographic empire who is now deceased, he once boldly declared his worldview of sexuality and freedom. And this is what he said. Sex is a biological function like eating and drinking. So let's forget all the prudery about it and do whatever we feel like doing. Well, that's the thinking and the worldview of many people in our culture today who are trying to put a Band-Aid on their sore soul through their new God of sex. Now, the notion that sex is just a necessary biological function like eating well, that's a lie. That's deceiving, and it's hurting people. Anyone who has counseled people knows the relational, the emotional and spiritual devastation and 
hurt and carnage and even the physical consequences of sexual sin. And much more, of course, could be said about this sad reality, but we need to move on. So first of all, when we reject or when we replace God, he gives us over to sexual impurity. Secondly, he gives us over to shameful lusts. Look at verse 26. Paul writes, Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now, I don't have to tell you that there are few scriptures that have the potential of upsetting people in our culture more than the one that I just read. Over the years, I have had many emotional and in some cases, tear-filled conversations with people to know that this is a very difficult subject for those who have same-sex attraction or who self-identify as gay or homosexual or have loved ones, friends, and working associates who are. And so, before I talk about this passage, I, I want you to know my heart. And I also want to acknowledge that we have not always communicated the truth of Scripture in love. In our teaching, we have not always demonstrated the spirit and the compassion of Christ, but sometimes more so the judgment and the condemnation. And so on behalf of all Christians who acknowledge that this has been true of them, I would like to apologize and say how sorry I am, and also we are for this. We have not always represented the spirit of Christ as he calls us to. But having acknowledged that, I also need to say, because I believe to the core of my being that, God, that the God of the Bible is all-powerful, all-knowing, and everywhere present, that the God of the Bible is sovereign, holy, and just, and also loving, gracious, and good, I, along with other Christ followers, have chosen to believe him, have chosen to worship him and trust him with all my heart. I've chosen to entrust my life the direction and focus of my life, my future, my eternal destiny, everything in my life to my Lord and King, Jesus Christ. And what that means practically is that he is my true north when it comes to knowing what is right and wrong, what's really important in life, and what's going to matter most when it's all said and done. It means that I believe that he is the truth and that his way is the best way to live and to experience this life to the full. And of course, I do not always live out his ways faithfully. In fact, I fall short often. But I diligently seek to grow in my faith and my understanding of, of his word. And then with the Spirit's help, to be and to do what he calls me to be and to do. When I teach a passage of scripture like I am right now, 
My goal is always to help us understand as clearly as possible what was being said to the people of that day, including the context and the background of the passage, and then how that applies to us in our present day context. Now I say all of that because when we come to a passage like Romans 1, 26 and 27, it's important that you understand that this isn't about hatred. This isn't about bigotry or wanting to pick a fight or about wanting to incite hatred or homophobia. This is just an honest, sincere attempt to understand what the Bible is teaching and what God is saying to us through this passage. And I say this because when people disagree with one another in our day, instead of having a mature, kind, respectful, and reasonable dialogue, too often one or both parties employ ruthless tactics via social media and other ways to shame, to stereotype, label, and demonize the other. In fact, it's well known that many special interest groups are unashamedly doing this. They've written books declaring that this is their strategy for dealing with those who have different beliefs than they do. Now, here's the thing. No mentally or emotionally healthy person likes being labeled. No one likes being shamed, called names, or demonized. Same-sex attracted people don't. People of different races, religions, and political stripes don't. Pro-vaxxers and anti-vaxxers don't. And neither do Christians. My challenge to all of us is this. Whatever your worldview is, whatever your convictions are, when you're tempted to label shame, demonize, or cancel a person or a group of people that you don't agree with, please realize that there is a difference between accepting someone and agreeing with someone. And what I mean is, I may not agree with you. In fact, I may even despise what you believe. But if I have any honor and integrity as a human being, not to mention as a Christian, I should treat you with dignity and respect as a fellow human being. If I can't, if I won't, then I am as guilty of the hate, bigotry, or whatever else I accuse you of. Now, as much as Christians need to learn this difference, so do those who do not embrace the Christian worldview. Bruxy Cavey puts it this way. He says, it is possible for someone to believe homosexual behavior is sinful, just as they believe heterosexual sex outside of biblical marriage is sinful. But that doesn't make them a bigot, a hate monger, or homophobic. Get to know us enough to see that we don't have to divide our thought world into gay and straight, or that we teach people must change their sexual orientation in order to follow Jesus. No, we invite all people to change their spiritual orientation toward God and their fellow human beings by putting their faith 
in Jesus Christ. So whatever our worldview is, let's stop the labels and the attacks and let's sit down together in a mutual and respectful way. And if in the end, we don't agree, let's continue to treat one another with dignity and respect and just acknowledge that we embrace different worldviews or we see things differently. Well, that was a sermon in itself. But I believe it's necessary preparation for our examination of verse 26 and 27. So let's look at verse 26 and 27. This is one of the clearest scriptures on how God views homosexual behavior. Not same-sex attraction, but homosexual behavior. I trust you see the difference between a person's orientation and a person's behavior. Let me be clear. Same-sex attraction is not the same as acting on it. In the same way that being tempted to be sexually intimate with someone of the opposite sex that you're not married to is different than following through with that temptation. As Christians, we believe that Jesus is our Lord and he's the source of our identity, not our past, not our biology, or our desires. I am not suggesting that we can choose our sexual orientation. I am saying, though, that we can all choose how we will live and how we will behave. Regardless of our sexual orientation, we are all sexually broken people and we're tempted to act out sexually in inappropriate ways. And so having clarified that, what Paul is articulating here is that when a female has sex with another female or a male has sex with another male, it goes against God's design. The word unnatural used here literally means against nature or against God's design. You'll recall back in Genesis 1.27, it says God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God says here, we are created in his image. We're created male and female which indicates that he intended our sexuality to be tied to the image of God in which we were created. And then right after that, in Genesis 1.28, God gives his first command to be fruitful and to increase in number. In other words, he tells the male and female, who you remember back in Genesis 1.24, he refers to as husband and wife, he tells them to be sexually intimate. You see, God intended for the marriage covenant and sexual intimacy between a husband and his wife to be a picture or an example of the spiritual intimacy that God wants to have with us. Which explains why throughout the Bible, the relationship between God and his people is often pictured as the relationship that's shared between a husband and a wife or Christ the groom 
and his bride, the church. Now, Rick McKinley, he brings this right home to the thinking of our present day. He says, many people today literally place their hope for fulfillment and satisfaction in life in sex. The thinking goes like this. If I can't express myself sexually as I want, well, that is oppressive to me. If I can't have sex with whoever I want and when I want, well, then that's oppressive to me. And if God forbids it, well, then he's unloving and he's not a good God. And anyone who teaches that God forbids it is also unloving and oppressive. McKinley says, those who embrace this worldview often decide not to marry because they don't want to have sex with just one person the rest of their life. They think, I need to be sexually, I need to sexually express myself because it is the pathway, do you hear this? It's the pathway to fulfillment and satisfaction. And friends, this worldview includes every type of sex outside of biblical marriage, including homosexuality, including premarital sex, adultery, or pornography. And you see, this is a description of idolatry, worshiping the created rather than the creator. Rather than letting God be the ultimate object of our worship and gratitude, we reject him in favor of our counterfeit gods that we believe are going to bring us true satisfaction, including the God of sex, the God of body image, the God of materialism, the God of power, position, or fame, or any other number of things. Paul writes, idolatry or worshiping the things that God made or created is a lie. It may satisfy for a time, but ultimately these counterfeit gods will leave you empty, hollow, and filled with despair and regret. Make no mistake, sex is a gift from God. But it was never intended to replace God. Now, when it comes to their view of sex, some people look at Paul's reference here to natural and unnatural sexual relations in verse 26 and 27, and they argue that homosexual sex is okay if it feels natural to the person. McKinley says, but that is not what Paul is talking about here. He's talking about what is natural and unnatural in relation to God's design within creation. I mean, if Paul was talking about what feels natural, then every person who wants to sleep with someone, not their spouse, would justify their sin by just simply saying, it feels natural to me. In fact, on this basis... People could defend sexism. They could defend racism and a host of other ungodly attitudes depending on what feels natural to them. But you see, true followers of Christ, they don't go down this road because their greatest desire is to honor their Lord and his design for sex and to obey him. A Christ follower has a deep conviction that says, I do not need to indulge every desire I have, even legitimate desires, 
because the faith adventure that God has invited me into is so much more fulfilling and satisfying than anything these earthly idols can offer me. Providing, of course, that I take God's invitation seriously and jump in with both feet. Folks, when sex or any other idol becomes the hope of our soul, the object of our highest affection, we are in danger of losing ourselves and all that God has for us. This principle is even true for the husband who puts his hope for fulfillment and satisfaction in his sexual relationship with his wife. Even in a relationship that God has blessed, if a spouse makes sex an idol, not only will he or she frustrate their partner and put their marriage in jeopardy, but they're going to find that even a satisfying intimacy with one's partner can't fulfill the deep yearning for intimacy in their soul because the intimacy that our heart really craves for cannot be found in anything or anyone but a friendship with God and God alone. And so to recap, Paul writes that when people reject or replace God with earthly idols, God gives them over to sexual impurity and also to shameful lust. And then thirdly, he gives us over to a depraved mind. Look at verse 28. In fact, let's read it together. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Now, you know, so often when we read and study, you know, the passage that we're looking at today, we get fixated on passages about sexual immorality, about homosexual behavior, like we just looked at. And we see these the sexual sins as the ultimate sins. And yet far too often we, we just kind of skim over the 21 additional sins that Paul lays out here in verse 28. All these sins, not just the sexual ones, but all of them, are a picture of how depraved and how wicked we are capable of becoming without God. Reject or replace God, and you know where that leaves you? Well, it's all about me. It's all about getting my needs and my wants met. I become the center of my universe. 
And when a world begins to operate that way, it shouldn't surprise us why it's the way that it is and the mess that it's in. For example, in Paul's day, if a Roman man didn't like his slave, he would kill him right on the spot without penalty. If a baby wasn't the right sex or something less than perfect or just an inconvenience, they could throw him on the street to starve and to die. Historians tell us that there could be 30 to 40 babies abandoned on the street or out in the countryside at any one time. Well, this is what happens to humanity when we reject God and God in return gives us over. Paul says God gives us over to our greed, to our stinginess, our, our selfishness and lack of generosity. God gives us over to our envy, gives us over to gossip, to slander, to our arrogance, our dishonesty, our deceit, to our incitement of strife and division, our lack of mercy, and on and on. As Christians, we're often good at labeling some sins as, well, those are just terrible. And others, well, not so bad. Sometimes we look at some people and we judgmentally think to ourselves, your sins are appalling, they're disgusting. And yet we think of some of our sins, they're just not that bad. But the reality is, we've all been on this long list that we read a moment ago, We've all served the things that God created rather than the creator, and we still do at times. But as I wrap up, let me remind you of the gospel of Jesus Christ. How Jesus changes everything, including the ugliness of all the sins that Paul lists here? You know, those of us who have acknowledged our sin and our selfishness, who've humbled ourselves and asked God for his grace and forgiveness and put our trust in the risen Lord, let's remember Paul's healing words in 1 Corinthians 6.11 where he reminds us of our sinful past and then he says, and that is is what some of you were. But you aren't that anymore. Amen? You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit. Paul says when you put your trust in Jesus, you're a new creation in him. Your primary identity is no longer based on what you were. No, it's now based on who you are in Jesus Christ. You are no longer the object of God's wrath, but the object of his love and grace. You are now the son or the daughter of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Because Jesus paid it all on the cross, God is no longer your judge he is now your loving Father. Now you are in Christ, and Christ is in you, which means it's a new day. The old is gone. The new has come. 
The core of your personhood is in him. You know, this is a massive gospel declaration for anyone who bears guilt and shame over past sinful behavior or is confused about their sexual orientation. McKinley says it's a declaration of freedom, true freedom, not freedom that that comes from finding our hope in sex, but freedom that says that you can come out of the closet in your faith community, you can wrestle with these things with others because you're with a whole bunch of people who are also coming out of the closet, so to speak, who together are being open and acknowledging their sinfulness, being transparent about their stuff in their life that Paul lists here, and together are seeking the Lord's grace and forgiveness and power to live in victory over them. You're not alone in this, friends. This is something that together with Christ at the center of our lives, we can find victory over. That's what the church should be. And that's the kind of church I believe Christ calls us to be. Not a church that waters down and explains away all these tough passages on sin, like the one we're just looking at today, and just kind of affirms people to live uh, whatever they feel like which is like a doctor telling a person that they're healthy when in reality they're sick and dying. How sad. No, we must not be a church that compromises or explains the truth away. But neither should we be a church that's quick to communicate condemnation with our condescending attitudes and judgmental words and posters and refuse to love and befriend people who need Jesus. No, I'm talking about being a church that doesn't compromise the scriptures, but also embraces and welcomes those whose worldviews and whose lifestyle we don't agree with. A church that creates a safe place. Not for people who who just want to pick a fight. Not for people who just want to demonize us and judge us with unkind labels. But people who are genuinely seeking spiritual answers and what it means to be a friend of Jesus. By the way, if you want to learn more about God's design for sexuality and, and, and find hope in all of that, I just want to encourage you to go through the by design series which you'll find on our website under sermons back in 2019 I'll close with this a young boy pleaded with his mother who was a single mom to please buy him a playstation she would just be the absolute best the most loving mom ever if she did so his mother loved him dearly and And so even though she really couldn't afford it, she bought him a PlayStation for his birthday. And on his birthday, when he opened her gift, he was through the roof with joy and excitement. He hugged his mom, and then he hugged her again and again and again. He set up his PlayStation, and he spent the rest of the day playing it. The next day, his mother looked forward to spending some time with him. 
But he begged her for permission to play with his PlayStation instead. And with the passing of time, she, re- she regretted getting him the PlayStation because it had become the object of his affection rather than their relationship. Church, so it is with our God. When many areas of our lives, including sex, a relationship with a special person, a position, our possessions, or any other good earthly gift replaces our relationship with him. When a gift becomes more important than the giver, when the gift becomes the object of our highest affection, God is grieved because we have settled for lesser things, for temporary things that may bring pleasure for a time but do not satisfy or meet the deepest yearning in our soul. Don't give yourself to the lesser things of life. No, give yourself completely to the giver who loves you and gave his life for you. Jesus can be completely and totally trusted. He loves you right where you are. You can trust him with your sexuality, your career, your relationships, your life, and your eternity. You know, he taught us how to love through his sacrificial death on the cross. He taught us through his very life that it is possible to live life to the full as a celibate, single individual. And so as we close, I ask you, in whom or in what are you really trusting? Your creator or his creation? Among the thousands hearing me in person and online today, I'm confident that most of you can say without reservation, my trust is in the Lord, my creator. And we just need to celebrate that. However, I'd like to challenge you just to take a little test before you leave here today. And if you can't do it here, then do it when you get home. Sit down and read through this passage, verse 18 to the end of the chapter that we just looked at. Before you do, ask the Lord to show you if there's any attitude, if there's, there's any behavior, if there's any area of disobedience in your life that reveals that you're actually worshiping and you're putting your trust in the things God created in that particular area rather than worshiping and trusting your creator. As you read, ask the Lord, what are you saying to me? Lord, what is it that you're asking me to do about it? Now, among the many who are listening to me right now, I'm sure there are some who would have to acknowledge that you're at the center of your life, not God. You want to be your own God. You you want to run your own life and, and do things your way. The question 
I want to leave you with and that I want you to ponder before you leave or this week is how has that been working for you? I mean, honestly now. Deep down inside, how satisfying and how fulfilling has it been? And even more importantly, moments after you die, when you stand before your Creator on Judgment Day, what will you say to Him about why you ignored Him, why you rejected Him, or replaced Him with something else? Friend, may whatever will be most important to you moments after you die be most important to you now. Let's bow our heads. Let's close our eyes for a moment and let's ask the two questions we become accustomed to asking. Lord, what are you saying to me? And Lord, what is it you want me to do about it? 